Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge, a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability and culture of their family's environment. Now, here's your host, Jonathan Guerrero. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a very special guest with me. He is the author of a book called Now I Am Known, and his name is Peter Mutabazi. I am so glad to have Peter on this program. He has a very powerful, powerful story to share. If you have not read his book, I would highly, highly suggest that you pick up the book and that you read it. I read it cover to cover. I have to say that if it doesn't change your life, you're probably dead. It is, uh, it's on that level. You, you just have to to try it. So I am very, very grateful to have him with me to have a, a wonderful conversation and a very deep conversation about his life and his story. Peter, thank you so much for being on the program with us. Absolutely. I'm truly a blessing and to be with you, especially. Thank you, Jonathan, for having me here. A joy, truly a joy. Would you start by sharing your background and why you wrote this book? Well, the reason why I wrote this book was, you know, I think, you know, I'm, uh, I'm a foster dad and I have kids that that love me so much, but I wanted them to know who their dad was. I wanted them to know that, you know, uh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dad that loves them that sometimes I think they see the, the best in me, but they, sometimes I think they question, do you really understand where we come from? Do you understand what we went through? And I think for me wanting to really get to know the details of my life was the best way that I can really uh, led them into my own journey uh, and be able to see if if dad can go through this, I think he can help me overcome what I'm going through. And for the readers too, I, I really wanted to encourage the, the readers that our past should not define our future or we should not hold on the past so much that somehow it ruins what we're capable of doing. Uh, that I wanted the readers to truly see, you know, how I managed to be the odds and, and how God in some way carried me through each moment and, and how I got here. And that was the reason why I, I, wrote, I wrote the book, uh, you know, to, to really give an insight of what it takes or what it means and the, the struggles I had to go through, but somehow how a stranger changed my life, that maybe they can be that stranger, they can be that person that changed my life to someone else around them. In the book, you talk about taking the first step to fulfilling your potential after trauma and abuse. Can you share how you were prompted to take that first step? Well, first step, well, you know, so I didn't really know what hope was. Like, I didn't, like, you know, when you grow up and there's no hope in your life, you you somehow don't know what the future was. I grew up not what, wishing if I could have an extra day. That's all I could think about. So once this man began feeding me, and then once he suggested that, hey, if you have an opportunity to go to school, would I go to school? So in my head, that's how I wrestled saying, wait a minute, if this stranger is really want to do something for me, should I take it or should I not? But also it was a, it was a scary moment because I felt like, because most people who were kind to us were also abusive at the same time. So him being kind to me also raised the, the flags like, oh, he might hurt you. So for him to go to, to say go to school, uh, it took me a little while to warm up to that. But after a while, I was like, you know what? He's been faithful for a year and a half. Let me just give him one day, you know? So that's all it took. Just let me give him one day. And sure enough, one day turned out to a lifetime, you know? Uh, and that's really how he started for me, just saying, what if? And if what if, can I give it a try? I didn't know what the future was, but I was like, you know, 
it doesn't hurt to try. I'll give it a shot. When I read the book, there were some moments I had to stop and just pause for a moment. The abuse that you went through is unimaginable to most of us who are listening right now. Some of it can is can make your stomach turn. And the one question I know is going to be in many minds of some readers is where was God through the abuse? Where was God through the beatings? Where was God through all of the suffering through the times when you were literally a kid and homeless? Where was he? I knew God was there. You know, I knew, I knew, and, and I grew up in a very, staunch Roman Catholic family that our grandparents, you know, we would pray, you know, I got the beatings because I didn't finish the rosary, you know, when I was required to. So there was a sense that I knew who God was, but I think I wanted him to take my life sooner. You know, I think that's where I felt like, God, if, if you are there, just please take my life sooner so I don't have to see the misery towards me and towards my mom and my siblings, you know. But somehow in the midst of that, I still will in some way believe that, you know, God is there. And if he's there, can he make this end sooner? Uh, But never was at a point to say, you know, God, where are you? How dare you? But rather, if you are, please take this quickly, you know, please. And that was my prayer every day. Oh, you know, some nights we would go to bed with with no food and my my mom or my grandma would say, hey, let's pray for for the food because that was a tradition that we did. But we always say, how do we pray for the food that we're not going to eat? There's no food. What's the reason to pray for? Hmm. And, and my grandma would say, well, even the air we eat is food from God, that we ought to be grateful for that. So in some way, I think I still had the sense of he's there in some way. Though, um, you know, I wasn't seeing maybe the, the best of all, but also too, remember, I come from a world where poverty and hopelessness was everywhere. It wasn't just my family that was struggling with food. It wasn't just me that was struggling with clean water that I had to walk miles and miles away. It was everyone. So there's a sense it was all of us are in it in some way that God, if he's there, he is seeing all of us. Like he wasn't just me, it was everyone. And I think that really helped me in some way I mean, not throw a fist towards him, but in some way to say, you know, when when, when can you finish this? Uh, and I think for me, I wasn't dreaming or wanting him, hey, could he make my life better? But rather, could he take my life sooner than, than wait for all that I had to go through? That was my sense of God, you know? Uh, or even just a little glimpse of hope, you know, when my dad didn't have to beat someone that, that night, we all slept well to know that God, guys, that's good, that we didn't have to cry all night or my mother. Uh, so in the midst of that, I think I still had a sense of, you know, he's there and somehow he will show. For those living in survival mode, what is your advice to them? Wow, survival mode. I mean, it's, it, and we've trained our brains to think that way, to do things that way. Like they, you know, it took me years to practice, you know, to be in a fearful, uh, you know, flight mode, you know, that I had to learn how to practice things, how to believe in things, how to have faith in people. You know, but gently, slowly, I really learned ways on how to not live in, 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 that, in that mode in some way. So I would say, yes, it's not a switch. It's not you can do one thing and that goes away, you know. But I think in our day-to-day life, we can learn ways that can really help us um, uh, you know, move away from from living in that mode of flight mode uh, that I began to believe in people because 90% of the people I grew up with 
taught me in some way that including my mom as a street boy everyone was mean you know you're cold you never amount to anything you're you're garbage you know i had every day in my entire life for my dad saying i wish you were never born so i had done i have to i did not have to feed you you know and so to hear those and to live in that yes it takes years of pain but also it takes years of learning slowly by slowly uh, on how to truly uh, not live in a world of fear. Um, so I would say, don't give up on yourself. You know, look forward uh, to what you can do. I, I learned how to do small things that really helped me uh, to really overcome some of those fears or reaction that I, you know, to me, if someone stood and looked at me, the next thing was I'm going to punch him because he's about to punch me. <laughs> but then I realized that, no, that's not true, you know that they are not there to, to, to hurt me in some way that I began to see people mm. uh, in, in a different way. But I had to practice that every day. And along the way, it became a little bit normal for me to live that way. When you were in Rwanda, you saw terrible devastation and incredible examples of hate. How did this affect you? Did you see God any point through that experience? Absolutely. You'd be surprised. That's the day or the time that I came to know the Lord as my Savior. You know, oh, wow. wonder. but he's how. So I had harbored anger towards my dad so bad that I wanted to go home one day and hurt him because I thought the best way I can pay him back is breaking his leg or breaking his arm, like doing some physical harm. That was my whole goal. I'm 19 now. I'm going to go really show him what a man looks like, you know? But also I struggled understanding God in, in a sense of, you know, the Bible says, forgive even those who wrong against you. For me, I was like, man, we can forgive people, but there's some that we should not forgive. And that includes my dad. So I did not become a believer because I felt like it was unfair to forgive my dad without having him to pay or me going back home and do something. So when I went to Rwanda for the first time during the genocide, I, I wasn't prepared what I was about to see. And there and then, you know, as a 19, 20 year old, you're seeing thousands of dead bodies and to see the atrocities. And, and I think I stood there thinking, how could people do this to others? How could they kill their fellow neighbors, their fellow brothers, their fellow church member, their fellow classmate? Like how how could do they how could they do that? But in the midst of that, I also realized that man, with my anger, with what I wanted to do my, to my dad, I was capable of doing the same. That I was no different than these people who had killed people in Rwanda. That I knew, looking my own heart that I was capable of doing the same. And that's when I turned to the driver and I said, you know, I know we might be killed while we're here and I really want to go to heaven. And he said, come on, you walk for compassion. You go to church. You, I believe I said, no, I look like one. I act like one, like one, but I don't know him as my Lord and Savior because I've harbored anger so much towards my dad for everything I wanted to do towards my dad that God had already done for me that I did not have to carry the weight I mean literally as soon as he finished praying I felt like I had lost a hundred pounds because the weight um, uh, of that was gone in, in an instant that I knew uh, that he would forgive me that I knew that I didn't know him because I had harbored that anger and witnessing what had happened in Rwanda I knew I was no different than those killers I was no different and people who had done all that to their neighbors. And I wanted to, to know him clearly by, by letting go of the anger towards my dad. 
for people that go through trauma or through some sort of a, or horrific abuse in their life, they struggle with trying to let go of that, to free themselves from that, to become something more, to even think of themselves as something more than that. What was the first step that you took in not letting your past define you? Well, so first step. So, so here's what happened one day. So I was, when I was eight years old, my dad had beat me and I was in pain and mad for hours. I was just so mad, you know, but then I had to go fetch water about three miles away. So on my way, I got to fetch water on my way back. I passed by the bar where he was and I saw him playing. He was playing cards with his friends and he was laughing so hard and happy. And then I looked and I said, look, I've been sulking for four hours, but this man forgot the minute he left, like, I didn't exist. It's like nothing happened. And in that moment, I thought, wait a minute. I can let him beat me physically, but I have control to control my mind that he can't get to it. Like, you can do whatever you want to do physically, but mentally, I'm not going to let you get to my mind. Mm -hmm. At eight, I figured that out. Like, wait, there are two different things. I got a body and I got a soul. And if I can keep my soul away from him, then I'm okay. And I think that really helped me in some way to survive. And I can remember going back home and telling my siblings, like, you know what? Let's make a game. If dad is going to beat someone, let's figure out how we can, let's say, count who's going to, you know, how long it's going to take before you cry. Or we're going to give you a clothes so you have a better padding on yourself so you didn't have to hear. So we, we made it more of a, not a fight, but more of a game. Like, look, I, I, I know how I can protect myself. I'm not really letting this person get to my mental capacity. And that was maybe my first incline of saying, wait a minute, I have control in what I take and what I hear and how I let someone in my own mind. That's and powerful. I think, exactly. And that really helped me under the street kids too. People would call me names. They would throw things at me. But I, I, I tried to say, hey, that's what you think, but I'm not going to let you really affect me mentally uh, in a way you want to, but I have control for that. You know, and that's really what helped me. Yeah, I don't know how I figured that as an eight-year-old, but somehow it's really helped me survive to this day. Hmm. You did not start out wanting to change the world, but you have discovered that you are changing the world. How are you doing this and how can others make a difference just like you? Oh, Jonathan, I don't know. I might be crying in, in, in a minute soon. You know, I think when he took me in, you know, I wasn't just, hey, this is a kid we just brought in. He took me in. I stayed, you know, once he, he let me stay with his family, I would sleep in the same bedroom as his kids. I would sit on the same table as their family. They included a chair for me to sit on the table. And for me, I think that really made me, um, like, begin to really see what life is. I saw what a dad ought to be. I saw what family structure looks like. I saw what love meant. I saw what to love unconditionally meant because they did that towards me. And I think I, I, yearn, I yearn to be like them, like him. Like, if there's any human being I want to be like, this is the man I want to be like. If I ever want to have a family, I want to have this family. So he gave me the best example to aspire for. But then in the midst of that, I realized that he cared for people, that he, his number one goal 
was to rescue the most vulnerable children. And I think for me, that's what affected me because I wanted to be like him. That was a little bit easier for me to follow in his footsteps. But also, honestly, I felt like I'd been given so much that I wanted to do something for them. You know, Luke 12, 48 says, to whom much is given, much is required. Like I knew I'd been given so much as a kid who had absolutely nothing that for me not to use it to save and, and bless others, that that would be really in some way a slap in God's kindness towards me. But I knew I have a call to really help uh, and do the best I can. But also he taught me uh, the life of Joseph. It was really funny. Like every time I wanted to give up, he would say, Peter, do you remember the life of Joseph? I would yes. say, yes. And he would say, what did he say when his brothers found him and they were afraid mm -hmm. that he's going he's gonna to kill them? What did he say? He said, for what you meant for evil, God used it to save lives. So in some way, I looked at myself like, yes, I was abused. But somehow I can use it as a foundation to help others. And really, he instilled those in me that I really wanted to, to use my own story, my own background, uh, rather than shame or uh, use it to do the worst of it, you know, be my own father, that I, he really taught me, how, how can you renew what happened to you for someone else to live a better life? And that became my mission to truly be a voice for kids, but also do what I can do to truly impact the life of the most vulnerable. So Peter, if we look at any of the images of you that are out there, we can't help but notice that there is somebody with you, and I think it's your son. But here's the other thing, and I'm just going to state the obvious that everybody else will see. And Peter, you are African, you're from Uganda, you are black, and you are a foster dad, and your kids, your children are white. Yes. What is your experience? What has it been? What has your experience been having an interracial family? And what are the lessons we all can learn from that? Oh, boy. Yes. That's, I need a, a day to just talk about that with you. You know, <laughs> well, I think for me, you know, so the, here's where it all began. You know, I, you know, I've traveled to more than 100 countries. And most of the time I travel with people who are thinking of adoption or they're in the process of adoption or they're picking up their kids. But of all I traveled with, they were always white married couples, you know? So as, as an African black man, I knew I did not qualify. I thought you have to be white, you have to be married. I wasn't married and I was black. So I thought, well, maybe that's a place I don't qualify. So I believed the lie. So when I came to United States, when I really understood the needs for, for Fosca, I really felt like these kids, I understand them. You know, I can truly you know, in some way, share a little bit of my journey to, to help them. So I went in the fourth gear thinking, well, I'm going to be a mentor, just a mentor one day a week that I can do until the social work said, hey, have you ever thought of being a foster dad? To which I replied, I do not qualify. And she said, why? I said, I'm single. She's like, no, that's a liar. So I said, <laughs> where, do I, where do I sign up? And I signed up. And then, you know, uh, and then I realized like, well, I think in my mind, I thought the most marginalized are Hispanic, African-American, Native American. So my kids would automatically be, you know, coming from those areas. Mm -hmm. But little did I know that when it comes to abuse and neglect and, and sexual abuse and barbo and physical, like it, it ranges from every, I mean, every family, rich or poor, 
that our kids get to experience all that. And my my second child was as blonde as you could go. And I was like, wait, is this kid coming to me? At, fr- at first I thought, I think you're at the wrong house. They're like, nope, it is your house. I was like, oh, okay. And once I received that kid, I think I saw, you know, he, he came in and the next day he just said, you know, dad, can I have something to eat? I was like, wait a minute, what? Did you just call me dad? You know, he's four year old. And I was like, mm. wait, what? And then I saw just, I think for me that the, the, the need and how this kid wasn't looking for a black dad, this kid wasn't looking for a mom. He was just looking for someone who will make sure that he's safe and loved. And he had everything he needed, including food. But that's all he wanted. He was and, just looking know, for a real dad. Absolutely. And then I realized that, you know, I, I can be a real dad to, to every child. and But also I realized that, you know, yes, there are less people who look like me that are false parents, you know, <laughs> that have white kids that I realized everywhere we went, people would be like, uh, you know, are these your kids? Yes. Or every time I went to pick them up from daycare or school, they're like, who are your kids? And I said, those, they're like, uh, can you show us the proof? You know, <laughs> uh, or sometimes, they will, you know, someone will call the police if we went to the grocery store, like, hey, there's a black man. He has two kids. I don't think, they, it just doesn't seem right. He has a different accent. The kids don't look like him, you know. And of course, then from there, I understood that, yes, it wasn't something people had seen every day or they were seeing every day. And I knew it was my time to change the narrative in some way to really be brave about it and say, this is what my journey is going to be. This is what my family is going to look like. This is what my family is. And there's nothing I'm going to change because of your attitude. But rather, I'm going to truly be a voice to make sure that every child is seen, heard, and known, no matter where they come from. I signed up to help every child that needs help. I usually take kids, you know, uh, from emergency hospitals, from the police, or they are DSS and they have nowhere to go. I always say, I'll take them as you figure out where they're going to go, because that's who needs us. And, 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 and people, yes, will question me. And I think at first I thought, man, this is hard. But then I realized that, hey, it's my joy to truly change the narrative that we can all do good, but also families don't have too much, you know. But also, I think I had the best example. The man who took me in, he didn't, we didn't speak the same language. We didn't come from the same place. We we went people who looked like like each other, but somehow he loved me as who he was. That really helped me to love kids as who they were, depending, despite of where they're coming from. And despite of what they had gone through, that I knew I was there for every child. And and the rest uh, is history. But also, I think it's my job to educate those who don't know, who question, you know. The the other day, I'll give you an example. We're at Casco, which is op- happens often. In Casco, before the kids get to test food, there has to be a parent. So my kids say, Dad, can we go try a food? I said, sure. And the lady looked at them and said, hey, I'm not giving you food until you go get your parents. And the, my kids all in unison, they said, but he's right here. What do you tell me? I go get another parent, you know? Wow. <laughs> and, and this lady just, I mean, you could, you should have seen her. She turned blue. And I was like, it's okay. I said, it's okay, madam. Next time, just ask. And I say, I'll feel honored if you ask me, are you their father? And I'll say yes or no. But for you to assume I'm not their dad is, is wrong. And then I also asked her, I say, I'm not making a big deal, but if I was white and my kids were black, would you have asked? And she said, no, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. which was honest, she said, because I see them often. I have never seen, you know, a black man who 
uh, who's a dad to four white kids, and and in some way I assume that they they had a different you know different parents, but little did I know that you're the dad, and I'm sorry. And I walked away, but I knew I you know I didn't have to be mad, but I left you know with that I feel like I educated someone, you know, you handled um, it well, you turned and that's just it. You, you handled it well. You turned it into an opportunity to, to educate. And it sounds absolutely. like, and it sounds like that's the way she took it too. Yes. You know, and now we go, we, every time we see her, she's walking, we go and say, hello, hello. We call her by name and you know, but I didn't want to make a beat, but I wanted to teach her. And I know she's going to reach to other 10, 20 people when mm-hmm. she can, you know, kind of really share with them what happened as well. Well, we have had an amazing conversation and we have only scratched the surface of what's in the book. Everything we've talked about in this episode is is in the book, but it, it's just a little bit of what's there. And having read it cover to cover, uh, do yourself a favor and go pick up the book. I will make it very, very easy if you go to this episode, for, so first go to thefatherhoodchallenge.com. That's thefatherhoodchallenge.com. If you go to this episode and go to the description, I will post the links of where you can get this book. So do yourself a favor. Get it for yourself. Get it for someone else. Uh, I can promise you 110% you will not regret it. It is a very inspiring. It is a very motivational and I'll go as far as to say it is a life changing story. It will change your life. As we close, would you tell us a little bit more about your organization? Yeah. So my, you know, my, my job or my, my, my job for the rest of my life is to advocate. I want to foster more. I want to adapt more. And I truly want to be an advocate for more kids. Uh, and that's my goal. You know, we have plushies. I get to share in schools and churches and hospitals as well. That That is what is ex- exists, you know. So now I'm known for me and my kids. We really want to inspire others, but also share uh, the journey that we've gone, we've taken in life. And, and I want my kids to really be a voice for others as well. Yes, they have found a forever family, but how they can inspire others to have hope, uh, but also how we can recruit, encourage those who are already false friends, but also those who are thinking about it. You know, what resource can we give you or a knowledge of us who have walked it to help you truly step in and change the life of one child or one family at a time? And that's what we're all about. Thank you so much for your time being here, for sharing your story and your book, Now I Am Known. Again, do yourself a favor and get this book. Get it for anyone that you know that needs a little bit of an inspiration and it it will change your life. Now I am known. That's the title of the book and it will be in the description below the description of this episode. Peter, thank you so much for the time you've spent with us. It has truly been an honor to spend this time with you. Thank you, Jonathan, for giving us the voice. We love what you do and what you stand for and we appreciate for making our voice seen, heard and known. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Fatherhood Challenge. If you would like to contact us, listen to other episodes, find any resource mentioned in this program, or find out more information about the Fatherhood Challenge, please visit thefatherhoodchallenge.com. That's thefatherhoodchallenge.com.